0: Welcome to Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Melinda, and I'm one of the youth pastors here. If this is your first time, we're so happy that you decided to join us. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or are just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. Welcome to the... The least attended Sunday of the church year. Did you guys know this? These are the geeky things that career pastors talk about. They've tracked the attendance over the years, and this, the, the, the Sunday after Easter, I guess most people feel like they're just doing just fine. They're going to stay home and watch TV or something, but it's good to see your faces here. We have a race to get going after this, so this might be a quick sermon. It may not be, because my boys don't race till three, and if you're curious what that is, it's called MotoGP. And if you really want some entertainment, if the preaching is terrible Don, Google what happened inside Alex Marquez's helmet yesterday. That's an important detail for you. That's only for Trey and I. Well, my name is Jason. I'm also one of the people who stand up here often. Trey just refuses to say he's one of the pastors here because he said that 100 times, 100% of the time for 12 years and I picked on him about Now he won't do it. So now he's going to tell you everything except that he's one of the pastors here on Sunday morning, but we know how to fill in the blanks there. Well, it's good to see you in a place like this. Welcome to the second Sunday of Easter season. And I'm guessing you're aware, maybe you're not, that if you didn't grow up in, in, a, in a liturgical church, that Easter is not a one-off event in the church calendar. In fact, it's a season like other seasons. Now, the gold comes up front and then you walk out that truth versus the flip, which would be Advent or Epiphany or Lent. And so it's, it's a little bit di- different. But maybe you've heard the term tide. That just simply means the period of Easter or the season of Easter. Since Easter was the destination to which we all traveled during those 40 or so plus days of Lent, it might seem logical that the story that we've been chasing would end or culminate in some way at an empty tomb. But the story doesn't. It doesn't stop there. So today's Gospel reading picks up right where it left off last week in John chapter 20 where the story of Jesus, you know, it doesn't end at that particular juncture where we covered it. It didn't end when he showed up beside an empty tomb as a gardener who knew the name of an old friend. That wasn't the end of the story. And what mostly occupies the space now in the Gospels between the death and resurrection and the end of their written accounts is going to be Jesus addressing doubt directly, tenderly, over and over again. I wonder if you've noticed, friend, how much Uh, on the subject of doubt turns up in these biblical stories that we love so much. It's an interesting subject if you think about it. We don't often think about it in church, but it's an interesting subject. I was talking to Catherine and Caesar last Tuesday when we were doing the leftover video about this. As universal as the experience of doubt is in the life of believers, somehow acknowledging and embracing it still creates discomfort in the church, which makes me wonder what we've made the church out of not the rightness or the correctness of dealing with doubt. I think it's fair to say, though, if you read most of the friends of Jesus, at least the ones who wrote these things down, the stories, and, of course, Paul, who wasn't directly connected but added to those stories, if you read them, it seems as if what they're saying is if we cannot accept the physical resurrection of the body of Jesus as the ultimate and unassailable proof of Jesus' authority, it seems as if they're going to draw the circle just too tight to include us. You see, the death and the physical resurrection of the body of Jesus seems like the one thing you had to believe, if you listen to the friends of Jesus, to accept in order to be in the circle of Jesus, and yet we know that they doubted, as I think you'll see in today's text. I mean, I get it. It makes sense. His friends were attempting to make very big claims stick, divine claims, if you will, about their friend Jesus in the years after he had gone on, and I understand why. He created a whole world of unbelievable and fantastical occurrences. Miracles, exorcisms, natural law bending capers involving crowds and oddly common objects. It's my favorite sentence. It's a very Austin sentence. Uncommon objects are on. This is what he did. He, he created these worlds that were extremely difficult to believe. And I get it. His devotees, the ones who witnessed these amazing things, of course they would assume that everyone would have to accept all of them to be included. However, if I'm honest, I think it's the teachings that, that held the centerpiece of. The life of Jesus. And they needed no extra special injection of authority for me in order to call those teachings divine. That's why I hover on them week after week after week. I don't need the book ends of an immaculate conception or the miraculous resurrection complete with a subsequent bodily ascension into heaven. I don't need those things to accept the divine power of the way Jesus lived his life. Now, hang on, take an inhale if you're afraid you're upside down in church now. Just a second. I'm not saying I don't believe them. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't believe them. I'm simply saying that these, the miraculous claims around the life of Jesus aren't the most important things that are happening there for me. And I hope that makes sense. Thank you for that, yeah. I don't want to accelerate in any way unnecessarily your journey towards doubt and disbelief. Even though I do believe... You were, you were going to spend plenty of time in the wilderness of both doubt and disbelief. I don't want to push you there before you're ready. You don't need my help unbelieving anything these days. My God, it's so in vogue now to be in full deconstruction. At least, it is, at least it is in the 78704. I don't know about y'all who live up in Georgetown. That might be different. But hear me, friends. When appropriate, you can rely on me. I will point out that most of the claims around the life of Jesus, friends, took years to evolve right? They weren't self-evident immediately. There was no immediate consensus or agreement around what his friends had even observed. Can I be seminarian enough in a church on Sunday morning? They chain whip us pastors for leaving the academy at the academy and talking down to the parish. Guys, this is an educated group of people in this room, and we take this stuff seriously. I almost put us in the E category of our Spotify. You'd be like, where's the sermon? Cat paws on keyboard. Well, it's classified E because somebody slipped a word in there. I don't want to accelerate this, but I'm always going to point out to you guys, these thoughts evolved. Now, follow me. In many cases, it took subversive scholarship and courageous innovation. In many cases, it took decades to shape these ideas and the claims that would in time come to be understood as central or essential to the Christian faith. You see, they would eventually become things you could not question, but they didn't begin that way. Don't forget, by the time the creeds are written, and you don't have to go back and do that history if you don't want to, but think third, third to fifth century. By the time the creeds are created, the church sought to codify these beliefs into airtight doctrines, right? And the word formulations that they chose were not intended to make them more universal applicable to the masses, which should have been the message, should have been the mission of all people around the gospel of Jesus. Nope, that's not what the creeds were doing. They, were opening, they weren't opening things up. They were, in fact, doing the opposite. They were narrowing and excluding, even removing voices already included in the narrative, like those of women and Mary and others who wrote. As Catherine pointed out to me this week, you could literally burn at the stake, friends, at this time in history for questioning what had by then become airtight doctrines that the organized institutional church had decreed in conclave were 100% factual and unquestionable. And my God, don't do that out loud, right? Now think about this, whenever the organized church attempts to lock down understanding and exploration, sanctioning certain ideas as official language we're authorized to use when speaking of God in the world, I'm just saying, duck, change your passwords, wrap your wallet and keys up in a diaper on the beach. You guys haven't seen that on TikTok? (laughs) Come on now. They say the place to put all your valuables when you go to the beach now is in a diaper and fold it up and ain't nobody touching that diaper next to your (laughs) blanket. Gosh, I guess the the tiny sliver of TikTok that I see every week is not the one y'all see, but whatever. (laughs) Listen, when the church begins to tell, hear me, friends. When the church begins to tell you, you must not ask questions. You cannot pull at the tattered edges of these thoughts. I'm telling you, you better duck, guard your wallet. Watch the back door because you'll see the spirit of Jesus leave and it won't take long. The life and teachings of Jesus should initiate and and inspire increasing exploration and creativity with which to articulate the presence and the activity of God in the world. It should never be the opposite. And if you need a simple way to know the difference, ask yourself this question when trying to discern, is something of the Spirit of God? Ask, does it set all living things free? Ask yourself, does it focus on including, not excluding? Let that be your litmus test. Anyway, if it feels like the preacher is setting up another series this morning, I am. Perhaps a better title will emerge over the next coming weeks, but for now, this is what we're calling it, Hello, Doubt, Welcome to Breakfast. <laughs> you like that? If Tara likes it, I think we're going to be fine. I'm so happy for that laugh. I'll pay you 20 later. We're going to spend the next few weeks, friends, pulling, at, pulling into view the ways in which doubt and disbelief guide us faithfully and tenderly to real discovery. If you're wondering why Jesus didn't ascend directly into heaven after his death or why he didn't simply just return back to the soil, which is similar a similar journey, whether or not you need to ascend into some heaven that they thought was above us or you go into the soil, it's the same divine reconstitution and deconstruction. It's either way. It works the same. It takes you to that place, that sublime state just beyond or around the corner from this one. If you're wondering why he spent the extra time among his friends and why they wrote the stories, I think he stuck around to tenderly presence the doubt, the the disbelief, the collective confusion that paralyzed his dear friends. But he didn't stick around to judge them if you'll pay close attention or make his friends say, or say that they should stop feeling the doubt. No, no. He didn't treat disbelief with shame the way the institutional church always seems to find a way to do. He approached doubt, friend. He walked right up to it. He touched it. He redrew the circles so that the doubters were clicked right back into the beloved community. Some of the tenderest stories we have from the life of Jesus are these, his interactions with his friends between his resurrection and his ascension. You see, in the world of Jesus, in the world that he's creating, doubt seems to summon love, not stifle it. Oh, I hope you're feeling some wiggle room for your doubtful heart this morning. That's the point. Anyway, just as you might expect In the flow of the story, John draws his account to a close very soon after the resurrection of Jesus. But before he does that, he records Jesus having appeared and comforted and commissioned the disciples to carry this news, this new and yet not new news at all, this way of life to all people. I sometimes think the friends of Jesus should have been paying closer attention, right? They should have been able to put all this together from my vantage point in history, but that would be unkind, friends. They were in shock, and they had doubts that they had to face together. The big ideas of their friend Jesus were meant for all living things. They wouldn't have argued with that, but they had some stuff to get sorted first, and that would take time. And Jesus doesn't seem to be in the mood to rush them past their shock and past their doubt. He took his time. Now, for starters, they would need to believe and accept that this life-after-death business actually was something that they could accept for themselves, which, in case you hadn't read the whole story, it would take many of them quite a long time to do. Some of them never would, in fact, turn the corner. Think about it. Do the math. By the time Jesus, the gospel writers sit down to write these actual written words that happened that they had observed, it's as if the circle of Jesus only now consists of 12 people. Where were the others? There were hundreds. We know about them in the stories. Where had they gone, friends? Many just fell away. They faded back into the fabric. Doubt is real, y'all, but hear me clearly. Doubt belongs to. It's built into your neurophysiology. Doubt is part of your biology. How else do you explain the unlikely evolutionary dominance of our species? Friends, we're not the strongest and we're not the most resilient, but it's tough to ambush us twice the same way. Because we extrapolate, and we prognosticate, and we doubt, and we wonder. Doubt is an acceptable and applaudable function of the human brain as currently configured. Doubt keeps us alive, friend, and we ought not to deny it. We ought to set a place for doubt right at the breakfast tables of our lives. We should thank it, not exile it. As I think you'll hear today from the friends of Jesus as as well as for you. There is no straight line, friend, through the shadowy woods of doubt because there doesn't need to be. That's the bottom line. Doubt is nothing to be ashamed of or nothing to push away, which is why for the next several weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to camp right in this conversation. In fact, I wonder if we could do this just to change the gears a second. Let's take a few minutes to name some of those doubts. Now, this is going to take a level of vulnerability and courage, and I'm aware of that. And if nobody wants to take the mic, that's fine. We always have Tara in the room. Open mic. You ready to run? Phil Donahue? Do you ever doubt? And if so, name, name, name those things. What are those things you still struggle with in the Christian story as you've been taught? All right, we're going to have it. That didn't take two seconds. That there is a being powerful enough to create the universe or multi-universes out there, uh-huh. and that it chose us little things out of the entire universe to present itself to it <laughs> that it resurrected. <laughs> you should along, name all the stuff. Along with a yes. few hundred. So basically the, things, the stuff. Like, everything. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Mac, can I have some of that mic in the wedges so I can follow along? My lip reading skills are not as good as they used to be. Who else? That's courageous. Thank you. Some of the things that we doubt. I doubt that heaven is going to be each of us as we were on earth up there just sort of hanging out. Yeah, where does the up come from, except the ancient mind that thought it must be better up there, because it sucks down here? Of course they thought heaven was up. Where else would they? People who go down in holes don't usually have a great time, so of course it must be up. Yeah. What'd you do? I went to church, and we talked about doubt. Oh, my word, we're having fun today. Yes? Um, Besides the whole religion... Uh, <laughs> thanks, Andrew. <laughs> um, I have a lot of doubt of past experiences and them being real or not because I grew up in like a charismatic faith so Holy Spirit was really important and any teaching on Holy Spirit I'm like do you throw the baby out with the bath water throw everything out like I have just a ton of doubt about that yeah okay I still can't barely hear him in the wedges it would be helpful for more monitor thanks Andrew pastor's kid oops just blew your cover there yes I mean, if these stories were supposed to eliminate doubt, it doesn't sound like it's working yet. Yeah, we could take all day, but we got a race to run. So, Britta, yes? The power of prayer. The power of prayer. Yep. And if you've not been around here for enough minutes to remember what she said, what was it, five, four weeks ago now? <laughs> Britta's little twin turquoise chair talk about suffering and things of that nature. Uh, if, you don't, if you've never given yourself to, to, to question the power of prayer, maybe you've not faced the kind of disease or hardship that, that others have. But yeah. Yes. What else? What do we have? We uh, we're new here, so hi. Um, <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> uh, I was raised really evangelical, Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were raised like, if you don't believe in Jesus, it's mm-hmm. like really just the Jesus that gets you to heaven. Mm-hmm. And I've been lucky enough to meet lots of other people from different faiths. And I go like, hey, we all still have, kind of a similar Old Testament, or, you know, like, how how is it that we're the only ones going to heaven, <laughs> yeah. and nobody else is? I, yeah. I think that's kind of a big one. <coughs> that's, that never felt right to me. Missionary Kid, Ray, someone asked me this week, when did you become a doubter? I'm like, I think I was six. Like, I'm not buying this. This isn't making sense to me. Yeah. Um, That Mary never had sex, and Jesus never had sex, and... <laughs> The disciples never had sex. Like, none of them were sexual in any way. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, That's purity culture right That's, there. Yeah, yeah. I'm believing the whole thing. Yes, yes. I doubt hell anymore. Yeah. Oh, Welcome. Yes. She said she doubts hell. Yeah. Rachel, we're just going to carry this on. Catherine and I literally scratched our heads. Will anyone, at, will anyone take the mic? So I wrote a bunch of extra words in case nobody wanted to talk. But look at us. Look at us go. Yeah. I've doubted that God is loving when my kids yeah. who came to me through foster care have been through what they have been through. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Let's just do 20 more. 20 more questions? 20 more. Let's stop. Minutes. <laughs> I doubt the deconstruction of everything because if you deconstruct everything then nothing's left mm. i'm really wrestling with i that. can hear that i can hear that yeah yeah uh for me it's just the notion of perfection mm. that any being can be perfect mm. and with this assumption how do we get to where we are today mm. if god is perfect yeah well, best I can tell, I didn't, I'm not keeping great track, but y'all are, y'all are pulling at all the epistemic crises of the human experience. Like, is there anything left out? Okay, so is there one last burning one? No? Okay. Um, so we have some doubt in the room. Patrick, we, we, we wonder. We're doubters. Where does the idea come from in our story that all the friends of Jesus believed the same things about him? Where does that story come from? That one's an easy one to blow up. It's as if we believe that in order to be in the inner circle of Jesus' earthly ministry, a person had to believe without doubt or reservation that he was a god. But I don't see that in the text, and I'm teasing you. We're going to get to the text. Hang on. Listen, I think the reason, the very reason John sat down to write this account late in his life was precisely to encourage others to believe and accept that Jesus was the one that many hoped that he was, precisely because so many of them by then had rejected it. They could not close the loop. They watched the whole thing conclude in a Roman execution with Jesus crying out in agony, Why have you forsaken me, God? That was the last thing most of them saw and heard. Many of them struggled, doubted, despaired, quit, gave up, walked away. It took years to put a positive spin on some of these details, friends. It took years. You see, doubt was in our story before it was removed and demurred, before certainties were inserted by others with an obsession with controlling the masses, mostly their sexuality. Let's be honest. Biblical scholars agree that the original book of Mark ends with the friends of Jesus running around all frightened after the tomb was found tampered with. No ascension in the original book of Mark, hear me. No commissioning of his followers. Just a tragic ending with chaos and confusion swallowing the whole group. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Mark 16, the oldest known versions of this that we have in Greek end abruptly at verse 8. And here's the verse. You ready? This is the end of the Jesus story. How do you like this? So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing more to anyone, for they were afraid. End of book. The oldest known versions of the book of Mark end there. What sort of ending would that be? Friends, thanks Mark for just dropping it off there. That had to be adjusted, which is why some believe that's exactly what Matthew did. Mark's memory felt too mechanical to to Matthew's memory, so he filled in the picture that Mark tried to paint, rendering a story that was a little bit easier to market to a world that was obsessed with empires and gods and heroes. The point is, friend, it took years for these stories to take on their current form. And here's the important part. Even seeing Jesus do these things firsthand did not eradicate doubt and wonder. Wonder wove its way all the way in, friend, as did doubt which interestingly is what our gospel reading is about today. And I'm so glad because it's time we go on record, friends, that doubt belongs too. I've had so many conversations over coffee in this town with, with you people in this community that come to me sheepishly admitting that they're wondering about the whole thing, which is such a beautiful thing to presence and it's never anything to hide. We mostly just wonder together and undo everything over a cup of coffee and then no one puts it all back together. <laughs> Well, today's reading drops us right into the chapter 20 of John again, and so let's read it and see what we might learn. This is the scenario where the friends of Jesus are in hiding. John 20, verse 19. Now, when it was evening on that day, and it was just after the resurrection, okay, just for context, the first day of the week, and the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So whatever happened or didn't happen at the tomb, fear still held them tightly in its grips now, They were locked away from the world, hidden behind closed doors, friends, processing the likelihood of worst-case scenarios, overthinkers laboring to find a way through. Anyone else a card-carrying member of that crew? But you see, Jesus invades their privacy, allowing himself right past the locked door, and he offers this greeting, peace be with you, which must have felt ironic. John remembers Jesus saying these words on both sides of death and resurrection, but by this time, those words, peace be with you, must have sounded a little different. (coughs) My apologies. Verse 20. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Literally, he repeats himself, peace be with you. Presumably for emphasis. Usually that's what happens. Presumably to make it stick, which we know, friends, that it didn't. And it wouldn't until deep into the book of Acts where we finally see courage and conviction begin to replace fear, little by little. But this time, Jesus ups the ante if you're paying close attention. Peace be with you. Plus, I'm sending you, just like God sent me, right through death into new life. Which all of a sudden begins to sound serious, doesn't it? Serious if you ask me. I'd have been terrified to hear this if I was among the hiders. (laughs) I doubt any of these people wanted to hear about having to suffer the way Jesus had just suffered. Certainly, that must have been top of their mind, hence the locked and bolted door. Anyway, this helps explain why Jesus doesn't just repeat this same word formulation. This time, he does it to embolden and encourage them, but that wasn't the only focus, you see. This time, now, he breathes on them. It's as if the story keeps getting more and more complicated, according to John. (coughs) Sorry. So let's read it. Verse 22. When he said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive now the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. No mention or anyone speaking in tongues here. So for those Pentecostals who are disappointed that John must have omitted that, (laughs) I felt you smile in the room. If you don't get that joke, don't worry. It isn't really funny. It's just some of us come from that part of the church. Well, the Holy Spirit here is a word formulation that can be easily misunderstood, so let's be real careful. Here, the Greek that John uses can simply be translated different wind or the wind of an animating force of God that stands outside the normal. So when he breathes on them, he's not breathing into them the third person of the Trinity that hadn't evolved for four centuries yet. He's simply breathing on them the the wind or a different wind, okay? And so for our purposes, we might think of Jesus' encouragement this way. By breathing on you now, he could have been saying, Uh, Be reminded that the constantly available presence of God is as close to you as I am at this moment, literally inside your locked door, right where you are, not right where you should be. In other words, Jesus went from peace be with you to I am with you as you are with one another. And if you ask me, in my view, this might be the sending part that he's referring to above. God sent me to be with you, so be with one another in the same way, hear me, on both sides of loss and grief and death and decay, rebirth and reconstitution and reconfiguration. Be with one another on all sides, in all ways, in all things. Be with one another. This is the tender and patient side of Jesus that I so deeply cherish. (coughs) Now, this bit about forgiving and retaining sins... I really can't help you with that. I have absolutely no idea what that statement means. I know what has been written about it, but it's not terribly compelling to me. I'm not unaware of what has been said, but it just still feels odd. And so let's move forward. You like that? I'm just not gonna tell you that it, I'm not gonna tell you it says something that I don't know what it, how it ends up getting to that point. But now we're at my favorite part of the story. Jesus and Thomas, verse 24. But Thomas, who was also called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. Now watch. Thomas, unfortunately known to most of us as doubting Thomas, he must have either not been afraid, so he wasn't locked away, or he was simply doing something more productive than hiding out with the overthinkers. And I love this detail about him, almost as much as I love this next verse, verse 25. So the other disciples told him when he came back, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the marks, the mark of the nails on his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and... <clears throat> and my hand in his side, I will not believe, says Thomas. But notice, if you pay close attention, the text doesn't necessarily say Thomas doubted Jesus. It's possible that his submission his suspicion sorry was more rooted in the reliability of his friends than in the most current status of Jesus' body. I believe we unfairly make Thomas out to sound defective <coughs> for doubting when he had every reason to expect the same proof as the rest of them. So let's keep reading. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and one has to wonder, where was Jesus this week? He was probably in Cancun, Cozumel. That's my guess. He was definitely down on the Amalfi Coast. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were still shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. In other words, when Thomas finally comes back to the place where the others were hiding out, they bring him up to speed, to which he responds, I'm just not sure, guys, and I won't be until I see his body myself. So here's my point. Friends, they were all confused, terrified, hiding, and full of doubt. And it feels now to me contextually weird to single out Thomas for some kind of sin of disbelief when they were all found in love. They were all found by love in their doubt, friend, and they were all offered the same evidence of the life and the torture of the body of Jesus. <coughs> Having a situation right here in front of everybody, Lamar. I find you water, yeah, you know. Water goes good with Kahlua. It's iced coffee, in case you're losing your mind over there. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta stay energized. for the day. Where were we? That reminds me of Princess Bride with a grandfather. (laughs) I love you if you know that movie. My kids hate that movie. My kids don't even like people who like that movie, so whatever. My point is this. They were all confused and terrified. They were all in hiding together. And the only reason Thomas wasn't, we don't know why he wasn't, but when he went back They were all in that same doubt. Thomas is not the only one that ought to receive, you know, the X mark for the sin of disbelief. We were all found by love in that same place. And regarding this bit of do not doubt but believe that Jesus says to Thomas, think of that as an encouragement to follow the progression all the way through. Follow the progression of doubt to physical investigation to actually touching the body of Jesus all the way through to some new form of belief. It won't be the same, but follow the progression seems to be the encouragement. It isn't a condemnation of doubt, friends, or Jesus would not have met them here in this hiding place twice. Think about that. This was Jesus offering tender, patient, kind proof of a transformed life. Again, friends, Jesus doesn't hate doubt or those who do. The church does, and there's a difference. Don't forget that. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, and Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Again, I'm not certain Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection so much as his friends and their story about it. It almost sounds to me like Jesus is pointing out the blessing of community gathered in collective doubt and disbelief. Can you see that? This almost sounds like Jesus encouraging Thomas not to isolate from the doubting community. Regardless, Jesus doesn't curse anyone for needing proof, even if he points out the blessing of being at peace with yourself without that proof. And of course, this offering of evidence seems to work for the life of Thomas. He seems to move from doubt to some kind of belief. Not only was his friend actually alive, Thomas elevates him to a godlike status in in the use of the Greek here. So what do we have to do with this? What do we have here? What are we looking at? Why would we be studying doubt the very week after Easter? Is this not a picture of Jesus treating doubt and patience with tenderness and kindness? You do know that Thomas goes on to be probably the most renowned of all of the apostles in terms of his missional reach around the world. You know Thomas ends up in India, right? I guess you know that. Whatever doubts he may have had, he found his way to some kind of belief. Beloved, the church has long stigmatized doubt for the worst, the most nefarious of reasons. You see, if an organization can convince you that you are defective if you don't agree with their version of truth, however odd or pre-scientific, however impossible to explain or intellectually impossible to defend, if they can make the problem, you, the person who doubts, out to be the issue, then they can maintain all control and authority. And I have literally just described for you all of church history. You see, the church friend may feel anti-doubt, but Jesus isn't. He never was. Belief is not the key or the secret to belonging in the world of love, friends. We belong because we are distinct, unique, one-of-a-kind embodiments of the life of God in the world, not because of our belief in a particular storyline, or worse, our belief that ours is the best of all the storylines. Doubt belongs, friend. Admit it or not, it's baked into your bodies. And if you bring yourself to God, hear me, exiling the parts of you that don't yet believe, then you don't end up with a clearer, more compelling version of God. You just end up with exiled parts that you will then have to figure out someday how to allow them to be set free, friend, because freedom is the point. It was only the ever, it was the only point of spiritual work. That's the the truth that endures throughout the centuries. You don't end up with a better version of a gospel. If you tamp it down, you just end up exiled from yourself. Don't exile your doubt, friends. Don't withdraw from your community if you experience it. Welcome it. Name it. Embrace it. Some of the last words Matthew leaves us with are these from chapter 28. Now, he hasn't been our guide through this particular Easter time. Let's see, these are some of the last words Matthew leaves us. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but they doubted. Have you ever seen that before? I'm sure you've seen that. Friend, as tenderly as I can as your pastor hear me, I know the nooks and crannies of your deconstruction, and I know the amount of doubt that you're now wondering. Is it too much? Is it too intense? Friend, doubt doesn't decrease the closer you get to Jesus, is my point. If that were the case, all of these people should have been fully convinced, totally certain, completely on board, but they were not any more than we are, any more than we need to be. Doubt belongs with love and faith and belief. Doubt belongs, period. So even when you're afraid, doubt might consume you, leaving nothing behind that does not mean that you are far from love or far from God, friend. That's something that you actually never have been. Not a single one of you, thank God. Friends, some of us, we never land. We only fall. Hello, doubt. Welcome to breakfast. Hello, musicians. Sorry about my voice. Why do we say welcome to breakfast? I don't know what size home you grew up in, but there's usually one meal that I could guarantee that everybody was in the same place, and it was breakfast. And when I say make a place at your breakfast table for doubt, I'm saying welcome it daily. It's not going anywhere. It's like one of your dependents. It's going to be there <laughs> needing Pop-Tarts every day of the week. All right. Why don't you join us on your feet as we worship? Got another song, and then we'll do the Eucharist and one more song. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list. Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 1030 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are and who you are becoming. Grace and peace be with you wherever you are.